You're listening to the Grassroots Church Podcast. We're a Jesus-centered community in Thunder Bay, Ontario. You can learn how to participate more by going to our website at grassroots.church. We are wrapping up a series. Uh, we are in the, the home stretch of a series on the five markers of a new reformation, um, which are sort of the pillars established by uh, this organization, network, whatever you want to call it, called the Jesus Collective. And uh, they've sort of established these over the course of um, well, the last couple of years in a theology circle. And we've had a number of um, community members here teaching on these. And this morning, I want to just, before we begin, I want to just thank those who did um, teach on these, these uh, the first four markers. Um, so Robin Peace, Amy Baker, uh, Vincent, who's not here this morning, Scott Baker, John Peace shared last week. Um, thank you. To all of you folks for uh, taking time out of your lives, preparing a message. I know what it's like. It takes a lot of time and effort to do that. And so I appreciate uh, your help in, in helping our community um, to kind of dive into this, these topics and to learn some of this stuff. And I also want to thank us as a community, all of you folks as a community. Um, as you know, the sort of the pattern of this series has been to like to teach on it one week and then next week gather around and have a bit of a summary and then a discussion time. And many of you brought your questions, uh, your comments, some of the challenges you had with these topics, these, these ideas um, as we discussed them. And I think there was a number of just really robust conversations that took place over the last, since when did we start this? I guess since uh, beginning of May or so. Um, so thank you, thank you for doing that. And as a brand spanking new pastor, uh, I can't tell you, how appreciative I am of um, a, a community who is willing and eager to kind of lean in to to discover more about uh, what is it like to follow Jesus, follow the way of Jesus in 2023. And uh, that encourages my heart, and I hope that you also have been encouraged in this series as well. So thank you, but we're not done. And so this morning, we are going to tackle the last of the five markers. We're going to begin to tackle it. Um, this one is, the church is defined by our shared center, not by the lines that we draw. And what we're talking about here really at the end of the day is a new way of disagreeing, which is no easy task to undertake. And so anyway, because this is no small task, learning how to disagree in a new way, we're going to take it a little slower. We're going to go through it over a couple of weeks. So this week and next week, we're going to talk, I'm going to teach about it. And then uh, the third week, which is July 2nd, so probably not very many of us will be here because it's a long weekend, uh, but we're going to have a discussion Sunday. And if you are here, that's amazing. Um, and then after that, we're going to start meeting at uh, 193 Riverside. And we will begin having sort of our summer um, church services there, as Amy said earlier. Uh, uh, and just by way of sort of giving you um, a bit of a heads up, this fall, my hope, I haven't figured all this out yet, but my hope is that we will dive into this topic a lot deeper. We're going to go through the book of Galatians uh, and actually talk with Paul, or, or learn from Paul as he discusses with the Church of Galatia um, this issue of unity, this issue of division, and how he kind of addresses it, which is really quite interesting and sort of sets the blueprint for what we're looking at this morning and over the next few weeks. So much of what we're talking about this week or next week is actually coming out of this book called Centered Set Church. During the introduction to this series, I actually uh, mentioned this. Um, and it's, uh, it's written by a guy named Dr. Uh, Mark Baker, who is a professor at F uh, college or university down in um, Fresno, California, Fresno Pacific University. Um, 
And just a really beautiful book. And honest, uh, again, there is, um, before we dive into this, another one of my hopes and expectations or dreams would be for us as a community to actually go through this book together. And uh, so if you're part of Grassroots Church, um, look forward to sort of announcements coming down the pipe about how and when, that, what that what might look like, whether it's in small groups or whether it's even us as just sort of a church family together. Um, there's uh, five videos that accompany this book and then a discussion guide, so it's really quite handy. Um, so I'm thinking hopefully we can do that this fall as well. Also, just by way of disclaimer, there is going to be a lot of questions that you might have at the end of today's message. A lot of things that you're like, what? He didn't address this. I don't agree with that. This is weird. And that's cool. And that's why I'm encouraging, get into this book. Get into the, the fall series that we look into this week, there this, this fall as well. Okay. And if you read the newsletter this week, uh, how, raise your hand if you get the newsletter. Look at that. Raise your hand if you read the newsletter. Oh, all right, not bad, not bad. Raise your hand if you don't know what the newsletter is, but you really want to get it because you're just, you've heard such good things about it. All right, there you go. <laughs> That's my brother. Okay, um, so if you read the newsletter, you'll have read about my concerns with this explosion of division. There's a lot of echo here. There's a, an explosion of division and, and polarization that is taking place, not just in the world, but in the church as well especially over the last few years. And there are, of course, all sorts of variables to this. And, and, and Heather, you can skip to the next slide. Uh, there's social media. And you know, social media utilizes these algorithms that as we scroll and as we engage with content, it reads what we want or what we like, what we engage with. And it continues to show us more and more and more of that so that the only stuff we're seeing on our screens are things that we agree with, things that we are aligned with. And then there's also the pandemic, which of course presented no shortage of topics for folks to um, plant their flags on and to cause division and again, separation from. Uh, then there is political ideologies. And of course we see this a little bit more intensely in the United States, but it's definitely happening in Canada as well. Um, you know, if you are a conservative, then you do not associate with the liberals and vice versa. Uh, liberal ideology offers this, 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 and, and they're wrong, and conservatives say this, 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 and, and they're wrong, and never the two shall ever intertwine or connect, right? And so there's this continued sort of separation, division in our society at large, and it is causing all sorts of, um, of yeah, just fragmenting. And, 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 and then on top of that, you have media, which is sort of like social media, but it, it says like at the end of the day, all we care about is people viewing our content, people... Um, clicking on our links. And so what do we do to get that to happen? We show them what they want to see. We sensationalize things. We take uh, half-truths and we kind of exploit that. And we do all this stuff in order to get people to follow this news source or that news source in order to get money from revenue, from, from commercials and all that crap. So there's all sorts of these variables at play in our world today that are causing this division this polarization, this separation. And I would say it's become probably the worst, I mean, this may be sensational a bit, but it seems like it's the worst it's ever been in the world, right? Uh, how many of you have family members that you just don't even talk to because they're on such different ideological um, planes than you and I, uh, politically, religiously, whatever it might be? It's a huge concern. 
And the church is even worse. And the reason why is because not only do you have all of these things happening, but in the church, you also get to play the God card, right? So you get to claim that God is on our side. So if I believe issue X, and I believe that God believes that, that he's on our side, then at the end of the day, that conversation is over. You're not going to convince me otherwise. And so there's this like added zeal in religious context and church context in which this polarization is really, really difficult to overcome. When you play that God card, and I think there's, a, did I have a quote on there? When we look at polarization, division in the church, there's even more zeal uh, because backing each point of division and separation is the steadfast conviction that God is behind it. And this is why in 2023, and you can share this screen as well, and you can take a photo with this. This is why after 500 years after Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the door, we have 47,000 Christian denominations. 47,000 Christian denominations. Which makes us wonder if this is what Jesus had in mind when he prayed for unity in John 17. He said, I pray that we, the church, will all be one. Just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and that they may be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. And so the question this morning is, is what is the litmus test of unity um, that is being provided? And Jesus says, uh, unity will be shown. So uh, if we're being unified, the world will believe that you sent me. So we have to ask, is the world believing when they see us that Jesus was sent by God? And I didn't think so either. Which brings us to ask, is there a better way to disagree than by continually separating, dividing, separating, dividing, people leaving the church and going over there, people coming to this church from over there? Is there a better way forward that we can do as followers of Jesus in 2023? That we can model, not just for the church, but for the world? And I think there is. And uh, Mark Baker helps form the foundation of this marker, as I said uh, earlier. He gives us examples. So we have to ask, where does this paradigm come from? This idea that if I disagree, I have to go my own way, and that we just constant, like, constantly are separating and fragmenting. Where does this come from? Well, he, um, at the outset of this book, he gives this example of when he was uh, six years old, he's driving home from church, and so he's just coming out of the religious service that he's attended. He's driving home from church, and he sees all these people mowing their lawn, which, as a six-year-old, he looks at and he says, oh, look at those heathens who are breaking the Sabbath by working on the Sabbath, right? So first of all, they're standing, but then they're also not even going to church. So they're the unchristian, they're the bad guys, I'm the good guy, look at me, I'm doing it all right. That's a six-year-old thinking. And then as he becomes a teenager, he, uh, this sort of, uh, this ideology, or this approach kind of continued, and he says he is, um, you know, he'd surround himself with kids who would cheat on tests, who stole from the job site, who were dancing and swearing and smoking and all this, and he said, I didn't do any of that. And so he had this category where he said, they are the bad ones, I am the good one. He drew this line that said, I am the good Christian, they are the bad Christian, or, you know, this backslidden Christian or whatever. And it was kind of the way he lived his life. And I think many of us could probably appreciate this. Many of us have kind of grown up in this same sort of uh, paradigm. And 
as he grew older and he went off to college, it got a little bit more complicated because there he started to see people who drank alcohol and yet had a pretty, uh, a much more mature faith than he did. We're doing other things in their faith that were like quite respectable and quite lovely, but they drank alcohol. And so he concluded, oh no, I've had the line wrong all this time. And so then he went home after his first year of college and he started pointing his finger with judgment to his parents and to his family and saying, you guys are so legalistic. Look at you. Look at you and all your rule following. Don't you know that the way of Jesus is a different way? And he got all sort of self-righteous and judgmental about their legalism. And so you see how that line changed, but it was still drawing lines, right? And so there is this sort of theme of judgmentalism that is kind of entrenched into this paradigm. It's actually kind of baked into it. And it is based around line drawing. We all do this. We all do this a lot. It's kind of baked into the way that we as, as uh, humans are, but also as Christians. And it's kind of, bought, I, don't, I don't know about you, but for me, it was kind of like the, the way of my upbringing, just thinking about who's in, who's out. Um, and the interesting thing, though, and I've seen this in my own life as, as I was reading the story that Mark tells of his struggle with line drawing, and it cuts straight to my heart when he recounts this lecture from a professor who was teaching on this topic. And the professor said this. He said, many evangelical students see their life as a progression from the legalism of their youth to a more mature Christianity, which stresses, stresses issues of lifestyle and justice and explores authentic Christianity. Stop there. How many of you can be like, yeah, that, that was my experience. I've moved away from legalism. I moved toward a more sort of open-minded, larger gospel, more justice-oriented, uh, you know, caring for the poor, doing these sort of being the hands and feet of Jesus in the world, all amazing stuff. And you would say, yeah, that's wonderful. But he continued. He said, I fooled myself. Oh, sorry. They move along just, but they're not going anywhere. They just change one means of judging themselves as superior for another. And that cut to my heart. I was like, oh no, that's totally me. And that is a hundred percent my story. And I'm sure many of you can relate to that as well. Right? You thought you overcame this judgmental attitude, this self-righteousness, but really it just changed flavors. The content changed, but the line drawing remained. Right? And so Baker concludes, it's not the content that causes the judgmentalism. It's the attitude of line drawing. Because embedded into the paradigm of line drawing is an us versus them mentality. It's not the content, it's the attitude. It's this continued effort of understanding yourself as good or right or superior or at least better than those other guys by virtue of their belief, by virtue of their actions, by, by virtue of the things they say or the things they do. Line drawing or boundary setting or us versus them mindset, however you want to phrase it, it all leads to these shared characteristics. Um, gracelessness, conditional acceptance, Fear, a lack of transparency, a lack of empathy, self-righteousness, shallow ethical change. I was 15 years old and I was coming home from a six weeks in Panama on a missions trip with an ultra-conservative uh, organization out of Merritt Island, Florida. It was a wonderful life-enriching experience. I don't, um, uh, I don't give it any kind of poo-poo or whatever. It was a great experience. But in that experience, I became very 
uh, aware of all the things that everyone around me was doing wrong. And I fortunately had the you know, privilege of doing everything right. And so I became quite self-righteous. And I remember doing very much like Mark Baker, pointing my fingers at my parents, being very sort of like um, condemning, critical of their, their choices that they made, critical of the things they believed about God. All of this stuff was like, oh, man. And I look back on that, and I'm kind of like embarrassed by it. But then I thought, oh, you know what? As I went off to college, same story with Mark, I kind of realized like, oh, man, I don't, all that legalism of my youth, of my teenage life, man, was I, was I uh, mis, misguided there. And so I had these professors who influenced me and friends who influenced me. And I thought, boy, I had, and I started reading books and, and I, you know, I became more intellectually humble and I had a bigger sense of the gospel and understanding of God and all these things. And I thought, wow, I finally arrived. And again, that line that I started drawing was like, boy, all those poor suckers. You know, who, who just didn't get it, who, didn't, who haven't arrived like I have yet, who haven't come as far as I have. Man. And so that judgmental attitude, it's stuck. And those, those traits of conditional acceptance, of living in fear, but mostly for me, this self-righteousness. And that last one, shallow ethical change. I, I don't know if there's any change in my character at all in those first 15 years of my faith journey. I mean, maybe there was. I'm sure there was because the Holy Spirit does that stuff. But in, in, not because of anything I done, but in spite of anything I did, did. And so that was my journey. And I have a feeling that many of us in this room can relate to that. We emerged out of what we considered legalistic church communities, uh, legalistic upbringings, you know, sort of black and white thinking, us versus them mentality. And we thought, you know what? Man, I'm so glad to be out of that. Thankfully, I've arrived. And yet we need to look at our hearts and realize and ask, am I still drawing those lines? Am I still finding that I can be quite judgmental, quite self-righteous? Where am I allowing the work of God in my life? Um, and so that's one end of the spectrum. And, and you think, okay, well, that is problematic, Steve. You're right. You know, all this line drawing, this boundary setting, this stuff is not healthy. So what's the answer? And, and it might be in your mind, like, let's erase the lines. Let's just get rid of the lines altogether and not worry about judging or self-righteousness and all this stuff. And so the opposite end of this <clears throat> spectrum, of this continuum, is to just say, whatever, anything goes. Water down the rules. Water down your theology, the rituals, the traditions, the practices, the things that you grew up with. And, you know, go the other direction. Go the opposite direction and say, none of this really matters. None of this is important. Whatever will be, will be just kind of whatever. Mark Baker calls this whatever whateverism. It's the opposite of line drawing. It's not holding in convictions on anything. Or you do, but as soon as someone challenges you, you're like, eh, you know what, it doesn't really matter that much. I'm okay with that. Uh, he tells this story of Dustin in the book, and I think it's worth um, just kind of quick summarizing because it helps us understand what uh, whateverism or what he calls fuzzy boundary, fuzzy sets, uh, what what those communities look like. And Dustin is the guy who grew up like many of us in sort of a a more traditional evangelical background. Um, he had lots of lines drawn, and he was, he was really kind of averse to that. He kind of realized, like, man, that's not what I'm seeking. That's not you know the best way. I just find I'm being very judgmental. So he started. Uh, participating in different faith communities in which the leaders of those faith communities had gone to great lengths themselves to erase lines because they too had experienced the negative fruit of line drawing. 
the philosophy came, the philosophy in these churches became whatever works for you. Jesus was an optional add-on, he writes, a sort of life coach mixed with relativism and pluralism. The center of gravity in these communities became the authentic self. The real you is all that matters, and it's the most important thing. And as as a result, many unhealthy actions were done in the name of discovering one's true self. Does any of this sound familiar? It's the nature of our society today. He writes that in these communities, in the end, what was determinative was subjective. I can do whatever I want, however I want, whenever I want, and no one can tell me differently. It's worth quoting at length so we understand the challenge that Erasing Lines brings as well. He says this, There was no call or challenge to transformation, no imperative to work on deep-seated issues in one's being or character. Rather, the corporate culture was one of permissiveness because who am I to tell you anything differently? Common guidance was to listen to yourself, which was offered without reins or constraints, without sharing a word of caution that our desires might mislead us because our feelings are fickle. And so in the pursuit of not offending anyone or to say anything with any type of conviction, lest we sound judgmental, we end up saying nothing. And we end up believing nothing of substance. And we end up doing nothing of substance. There's an irony here that I should note as well, that sometimes you find in these groups that try to erase the line, there is this new line that is drawing that is being drawn, and that is the line of not having a line. You know what I mean? Oh, we are very tolerant of everything here. Tolerance at all costs, except for those who are not into erasing the lines. So on the one hand, we have this problem of divisions in our churches. In fact, case in point, just this week, I don't know if you've been following uh, any religious news, but the Southern Baptist uh, denomination in the States, one of the largest denominations, they just drew a new line that's, well, not a new line, but they reinforced it and they kind of put it down on paper and made it official law that no women of any, no women should have any uh, title of pastor of any form, shape, any shape or form. How many people saw that this week? Which was somewhat unsettling for churches like Saddleback Church that believes that women can be pastors. And so this, one of the largest churches in America, Rick Warren's church, are now out of the Southern Baptist Convention, Southern Baptist denomination, whatever you call that. And a number of other churches followed suit as well. Because the line drawing doesn't stop. It's always, always drawing lines. It's always us versus them, right versus wrong, who's in, who's out. But then on the other hand, you have this natural response to drawing lines and divisions, and it's a sort of kumbaya, let's all just get along, not have any lines or boundaries, and let's see what we can do. And Baker actually demonstrates that these two ends of a spectrum, uh, he, he demonstrates them visually. And um, we looked at brief, these briefly during the introduction of this series, and I posted them on Facebook last night. But here's what a bounded set line drawing church looks like. So we draw this line around these people because they are in, they believe the right things, they do the right things, they say the right things, they all of the things that we that we value as most important, they're on board with. And so we draw this line around them. And he says a bounded church has a clear boundary line that is static and it distinguishes Christians from non-Christians or true Christians from mediocre Christians. The line generally consists of a list of correct beliefs and certain visible behaviors. 
A bounded church has tendencies toward a sense of superiority and judgmentalism. It, in, it hinders transparency and shames. How many of you have dealt with shame in your life as a Christian? Yeah. Yeah. That's because you're part of a bounded set of a community that has caused that to happen. But then on the other hand... Um, Oh, sorry, before I go there, uh, some of you might think, oh, this is a bit of a straw man argument. You know, churches don't actually exist in this way. This is a very sort of black and white simple thing. Okay, I want to see if this is true for you because it was definitely true for me. I read this in the book and I was like, yeah, that, that strikes a chord. Um, picture this, a pack of cigarettes. And uh, this demonstrates how we do these lines. Right? He quotes, this is actually a church in Toronto, uh, the pastor there, and he, he had said this. He said, this is a marker in evangelical churches and conservative churches, perhaps in our circle. This is a marker. This is a pack of cigarettes, a pack of smokes. You see, I could be an arrogant man. I could be an angry man. I could be a greedy man, and I could still probably be your preacher. But let me finish my sermon, step to, out to the parking lot, and light up one of these. Ask yourself, and be honest, how much longer would I be your preacher? At the very least, there's going to be a meeting, right? It's funny how something simple like that just like brings it all home and it's like, oh, that's what line drawing looks like. I get it. And that cuts to the core. That is me. I am definitely still a part of that bounded set, us versus them th thinking. And then we have the other position here. So notice that line that draw, that's drawn is very sort of fuzzy, not really evident, right? And he says, in response to problematic line drawing, a fuzzy church erases the line. The grounds for distinction and shaming judgmentalism are gone, but the fuzziness erodes the group's sense of identity. It lacks a sense of call to a different way of living. It inhibits loving others fully. It has a tendency toward blandness not really doing much of anything. Your stance on communion, whatever is least offensive. How do I understand scriptural authority? Whatever works for you. What does the cross mean? However you interpret it to mean. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Take any theological issue, any ritual, any tradition, any core conviction, and cover it with the supreme virtue of whatever doesn't offend. And we're vaguely Christian, but you know, if you challenge us on that, we might even denounce that as well. <clears throat> because we're too afraid to say anything one way or the other, or there's this fear of losing or offending, or at the very least, making for an awkward interaction. Okay, well, we demonstrated this continuum sufficiently, um, and we talked about what's the, the cause of this division, this disunity in the church. And I know our community grassroots has struggled with this for years, and the pandemic has exacerbated this bounded sentimentality, this us versus them mindset. We've lost members of our community because of that. Um, <clears throat> we all understand it. And there's this tendency for some in our community to make sure this, those lines are good and thick, right? To really emphasize them over everything else, to find our identity in those things, to find our sense of purpose and existence in these things. And yet there's a sense from others that we need to ease up on the lines that we draw, to emphasize love over everything and to not get into the weeds about our beliefs or our convictions or even our values. And so where do we go from here? The answer is not some mixture. The answer is not some sort of centrist approach to this continuum where we draw lines about some things and vague about other things. 
Instead, the answer is a different paradigm altogether. Because although bounded and fuzzy groups differ radically and they're positioned as opposite ends of a, continu a shared continuum, they share the same paradigm about who defines who belongs to the group. That's the question that that continuum, that that paradigm seeks to answer. Who define, you know, how do we know who's in, who's out? But what if we change the question altogether? And this is what I think the New Testament teaches. There's a thread of this all through the scriptures. And I think it's a beautiful thread. And I think somehow we've lost the plot. Somehow we've lost our way in this. But I'd love for grassroots to recapture that. Um, and I'm going to be teaching in Galatians in the fall. So I'm not going to dive deep into this tonight or this morning. But uh, I do want to just look at sort of this passage in Galatians 6 quickly. Uh, chapter 6, verse 14 through 15. May I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul writing, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. This is the conclusion that Paul comes to at the end of his letter to the Galatians. And we don't have time to dive into this, like I said, but uh, <clears throat> very briefly, there were these lines that were being drawn um, between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, in which customs and traditions and practices that Jews had practiced before their encounter with Christ were now being carried over into this new life as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. And <clears throat> it was causing division between the two groups of Christians. They were not able to eat uh, meals together at the same table. And the Jews were, Jewish Christians were insisting that these Gentile Christians get circumcised because that was the line that was drawn. That was what needed to happen. In order, in order for them to be unified, in order them, for them to be united. Um, so they insisted on this circumcision. Now, Paul does say circumcision is not necessary throughout the letter. He does emphasize that. But notice he doesn't erase all the lines of distinction. He's not interested in drawing further lines or further boundaries, knowing that there will be this tendency for those who are listening to be like, oh, so we don't have to be circumcised? Sweet. And then an old group over here that's the anti-circumcision group, anti-circumcision group starts up and says, look at us. If you're circumcised, you can't be part of this, right? That's not the intent. And Paul knows that that's our tendency as humans to do more lines in the sand, more lines and more boundaries that we set up to us versus them to understand who's right, who's wrong. So he says, um, so, but this, sorry, this accomplishes the exact opposite of what Paul is going for. Instead, he makes the stunning statement that circumcision or uncircumcision, that doesn't matter. The only thing that matters, the only thing that defines us is the cross of our Lord Jesus. That's the center. That's the thing that matters. It's the only thing that Paul is willing to boast in. Amen. What matters is the new creation that takes place when we encounter the risen Lord. Again, um, we'll be diving into this in the coming weeks, but for now, can we just see that this is a blueprint that is being laid out for us here as Christians 2,000 years later? That it is not the creating lines, it's not the erasing lines. Instead, it is knowing what is at the center and then moving toward that. And follow, for followers of Jesus, we put the crucified and the resurrected Jesus at our center. Amen? And our lives flow in response to that and toward that, toward that character of Christ, 
and toward everything that Jesus represents on the cross. What does that look like, practically? Well, before I do that, I'm going to borrow from Megan Good. We've been borrowing from her um, throughout this series. She is one of the uh, uh, the pastors and one of the sort of theolo- theologians who spoke into uh, the Jesus Collective formation, and um, she's a, a pastor in a Mennonite church in Arizona. And she has this sort of cutesy um, diagram where she uses uh, to kind of help explain this. And so you have emoji Jesus at the center, uh, and Derek knows this because we were just in Minneapolis a couple weeks ago, and she presented this whole thing. Um, so we have Emoji Center and the, uh, 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 Jesus at the center. And then you have Holy Hank right here. And Holy Hank is a good guy. You know, he goes to church. He doesn't swear. Um, you know, Megan says she, he drives a minivan. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, he's, he's overall just a good guy. And then down here, far away from Jesus, you have Messed Up Mike. And Messed Up Mike is a bit messed up. You know, he's on his third divorce. He's hard, it struggles to hold the job. He uh, drinks a little bit too much. Um, you know, he can be a little bit abrasive when you encounter him. He's really struggling right now. And so when we look at these scenario and this question, the, the question isn't where are these two starting from? Or what is their position in relation to Jesus? But instead, Megan says, what is their trajectory? in relation to Jesus. Are they moving toward the center or away from the center? Are they moving toward Jesus? Are they aware of their situation, of their brokenness, of their desperate need for grace? Are they continually asking, how can I become healed? (laughs) What is that journey of healing? What does that journey of transformation look like? And am I willing to receive that? Regardless of the state I'm in, regardless of my bad habits, regardless of wherever I find myself, am I willing to move toward this person of Jesus when he beckons me? Or do they have it all figured out already? Do they have all the answers for everything? Do they consider that they've arrived, that they're right, they don't need to change? Look at how close I am to Jesus. I'm fine. Do they act with no thought of how their actions might impact others? Is there an inherent selfishness at play in the things that they buy or the way that they spend their time or they use their resources that serves them and not the kingdom? Even if on the surface it looks pretty good. And this is why to be a follower of Jesus, you don't have to have perfect theology. You don't have to have some deep intellectual grasp of spiritual things. You just need to be willing to stumble toward Jesus. I wasn't expecting to get emotional over emojis. You just have to be willing to stumble toward Jesus. Amen? Amen. There you go. Yeah. Recognizing your need for grace and be open to how he can transform us. Megan says this, she says, one of the things I've learned over time is there are a lot of people I know who I think are deeply wrong on a whole lot of issues, on how they think and what's going on in their lives, and yet they're stumbling toward Jesus with a sincere desire to please him. And there are other people who I think are right on 99% of the things about the world and who are living what look like on the surface really good lives, but they're about other lords and other projects that aren't Jesus's. 
What matters most isn't the position people are starting from, but what trajectory they are moving on. Who are they seeking? Who are they following? Who are they stumbling toward? Amen? And of course, Baker has a diagram for this as well. This approach that transcends the continuum of boundary fuzzy lines. He calls it a centered set church. And it looks just like Megan's emoji thing. There are people who are moving toward Jesus at the center. There are people who are moving away. And the conversation, the question at the end of the day isn't who's in, who's out. But the question is, who is moving toward Jesus? We don't have to agree on all the things. Heck, we don't have to agree on many things at all. But is there a posture toward Jesus or is there a posture away from Jesus? And he defines this as such. He says, a centered church discerns who belongs to the group because there still is a sense of belonging to a group here, folks. But it belongs to the group by observing people's relationship with the center, Jesus Christ. And as the diagram illustrates, the group includes all who are oriented toward the center. Their common direction brings unity. There is space to struggle and fail because everyone recognizes that they are in process. They are moving closer to the center. A centered approach remedies the problems of a bounded church that motivates a fuzzy church to blur boundaries while also avoiding the negative fruit that grows out of a fuzzy approach. Unity is not formed by virtue of being uniform in our thinking. Let me say that again. Unity is not formed by virtue of being uniform in our thinking. We don't all have to think the same way, in other words. Instead, it forms by virtue of having a common orientation toward the center. We can skip that question of who's in and who's out altogether. And not because we've either erased the line or we know without a shadow of doubt who's in and therefore it doesn't matter, but because the question doesn't make sense when we put Jesus as our center and we understand our life's direction and our community's direction and relationship to him. It sounds simple, right? That's all we have to do? Oh, easy. Okay, now we got it, Steve. Thanks. Well, it's simple in the diagram, but that's about it. Um, I'm learning that the reality is it, it, it takes a lot for us to unpack this and even more for us to embody this. In fact, it will probably be, probably be a lifelong pursuit, sort of like following Jesus. We're never going to arrive. We're never going to get it perfect. There's going to be stumbling all along. And as long as we're stumbling forward, I think that this might look like that. But friends, it's worth the effort. The world needs a new model of disagreeing. And it can begin right here at Grassroots, right? And these Jesus Collective communities all around. No, it doesn't have to be a Jesus Collective community. It can be any community that realizes Jesus is the center. As we embody this Jesus-centered approach, resisting that line drawing, resisting that us versus them mindset, or resisting the, er- the, the line erasing paradigm, and embracing altogether more beautiful and attaining the unity that Jesus prayed for, and that Paul and other New Testament writers um, beckon us toward. And next week, we are going to dive into the nuts and bolts of what a centered set church that puts Jesus at the center might look like practically. And one of the big questions we're going to try to address is, in a centered set paradigm, can you even hold convictions? What does that even look like? How do we do that? How do we do that without separating, without fragmenting, without splintering? That's next week. 
This week, I just want us to think of this new framework. I want us to consider what this might mean in our lives as individuals and our, our lives as a community, as a church. And I'll invite the band up this morning as we close with our communion, this simple act of unifying and bringing us together under what we believe is the most important part of being a follower of Jesus, putting Jesus at the center. Um, and so again, as we've been doing the last few weeks, trying to do a little bit of a liturgy around this, um, and I realize we're way over time. I'm going to blame it on the break, not the sermon. Um, but let me just read this quickly, and then uh, I invite you to the table as we sing a final song. So I'm going to invite everyone to stand. Stretch a little bit. <sighs> Spirit, we thank you for your direction. We thank you that you are present with us in this room. You're present with those who aren't able to be here. Would you impress upon our hearts what it looks like to be Jesus-centered? Help us to embody that idea, not just in theory, but in practice. And this morning, as we enter into this sacred tradition that began with Jesus the night he was betrayed and has been passed down to you and me as a simple act of worship and obedience, we join with followers of Jesus all around the world taking part in this same ritual. 47,000 other denominations doing the same thing we're doing today. Let us remember that we are but one part of this larger body and that Jesus' death and his resurrection bind us as one, regardless of where we might fall on all other aspects of our faith. And so as we come this morning, know that all are welcome. Let us partake of this bread and of this cup, remembering the love that unites us, the grace that flows through us as we live out the daily call of being Jesus' hands and Jesus' feet to a broken world, broken and hurting world. This morning we want to give thanks for these elements, this simple meal, nourishing our spirits, deepening our communion. May the love we've experienced empower us to spread compassion, justice, and peace. May Jesus' inclusive love guide us. May his divine grace sustain us. And may his compassionate spirit empower us. Amen.